Father, we ask now for your help, that your word would be clear to us, that every distraction would be gone and we would behold your glory and your majesty and that you would speak directly to our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So second commandment. So we're spending 10 weeks, approximately 10 weeks in the 10 commandments, um, looking at how they are still very relevant for our lives now. And last week we went over the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. So you shall have no other gods before the one true God. And the idea there was that we shouldn't so much be looking out to detect the lowercase g gods of our society and staying away from them. But actually the question should be more of an internal examination of what has or what could become a god to us. Because anything can become a god if we love it more than God. That is what idolatry is. If we love anything more than God, our families, our work, good things that we can turn into a false God because we give our devotion to that thing, um, that devotion which should only ever be given to the Lord, the one true God. And here in the second commandment, God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, I'm going to spend um, a tiny bit of time just explaining verses 9 to 10, um, like a tiny bit, because the, the whole bulk of the sermon today will be basically on verse 8, this idea of a carved image. So verses 9 and 10. Um, again, I'm only going to just explain this very briefly um, over a minute or two here. So verses 9 and 10, where the Lord says here, uh, I am a jealous God. So the Lord your God, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There are two things I would say to this. This is not talking about a generational curse, some sort of generational curse that flows down. If your father or mother was a sinner, then that sin, um, obviously we know that sin flows down from Adam. We believe in original sin, but what this is not saying is that there is some curse upon the third and fourth generations where if your father was wicked, then that will flow down. It's more talking about the consequences of sin. So we know from passages like Ezekiel 18, God makes it crystal clear in that passage there in Ezekiel 18 to say, I am a just God. And if your father was wicked, but you, you see that wickedness and you turn from it and you live a righteous life, then I will, I will reward you according to your righteousness. Whereas if your father was righteous and you see that and you turn from it and you live a wicked life, then I will judge you according to your wickedness. So um, it's not right to say that this is a generational curse, but what this is talking about is more the consequences. Just like if you have someone uh, who grew up in an environment full of alcoholics and drug abuse, you are far more likely 
to be affected by the consequences of their actions and then end up living a life of alcohol, alcoholism and drug abuse. But that doesn't mean that there's a curse and that doesn't mean that you have to. There are millions of examples of people who then see that and they reject it and they turn away and they live a completely different life. And that's kind of what this is. God is saying here, I'm a God who visits the iniquities um, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, as in there will be consequences for sin and it will flow down, but you don't have to live that life of sin. That's the first thing. The second thing, which is probably more important, is this is talking about the comparison of how much more does God show his love toward people. He says for a thousand generations, an innumerable amount. The point is the comparison here. It's as if God's saying, my love is so much more powerful than my judgment upon sin, though my wrath is very powerful and to be feared. But the point is, if you turn from that, oh, how beautiful will my love be for you for a thousand generations. So the point here is the comparison that we always see. How good is God? How much better is God? That's verses 9 and 10. Now, with that said, let's look at verse 8. What this idea of making a carved image is. So there are clear connections between the first and the second commandment. So the first commandment is about idolatry and on surface level, the second commandment seems to be very similar, right? Like it seems to be talking about idolatry. Just don't, don't make idols, don't have other gods in your life. But these two commandments can't be exactly the same because none of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words given to us, none of them are exactly the same. They are distinct in their own way. God would not repeat himself in this particular passage of Scripture. So this second commandment must clearly be referring to a different aspect of idolatry that we should be avoiding. And probably what makes it clear is to say the first commandment is about worshipping false gods and the second commandment is about worshipping the true God falsely. So the second commandment is about this idea of God has revealed himself in a particular way and we are not to try and worship him by creating some image or reducing him in some way to try and worship him but really it's in a false way because we are inevitably making him into something that he's not. So that's why God says, you must not take anything from my creation and create an image that you think will help you to worship me. Because that is not how I have revealed myself to you. Now, we're not going to focus today upon icons and the images, the physical images that you might see more in like a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox tradition. Um, because I just... That is important, um, but I think our context is a little bit different. But just um, a very helpful uh, bit of writing on this is from J.I. Packer and his book, Knowing God. And in, he has a chapter that is specifically on this second commandment. I think he makes a very compelling case of why we shouldn't have any physical images of God. But I'm going to leave that because J.I. Packer will say it a lot better than I can. So that's J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And he talks particularly about the sort of Roman Catholic Orthodox tradition and some of the dangers there. 
but we're going to look at the dangers in our context of creating an image of God and so worshipping the true God in a false way. And the reason why this is mostly about not worshipping the true God falsely is because of the context of this passage. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, just after we left off in Deuteronomy chapter 4 a few weeks ago, where we looked at verses 1 to 8, just after that, Moses says, here he is repeating what had happened to the first generation, and he is speaking now to the second generation, and he's talking about when God gave these Ten Commandments the first time to the first generation. And in chapter 4, he says, from verse 12, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And the word for form there, when Moses says, when God came and spoke to you, you saw no form. That is the exact same word as the word we have in the second commandment for likeness, where God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. So he's saying, or any form. And now Moses in chapter four is saying, when God gave these commandments to you, you didn't see any form. You didn't see any image, not even a silhouette of God that you could then have some picture of to try and recreate. You didn't see that at all. In verse 15 of chapter 4, Moses goes on to say, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form, same word, on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. He goes on to give all of these examples. And the point is, when God appeared to you giving these commandments, you didn't see anything that you could recreate. You saw no form. God did not reveal himself in that way. God had specifically revealed himself audibly only. And he is saying, you must not try and capture some image of me that you will then, that might help you to make me more visible. Don't try and bring me down to your level of understanding. So there is no form or image that anyone could possibly recreate that would capture a holy, infinite God. There is nothing that could capture that. God has ordained it that he would reveal himself to us in his way, not us changing it and trying to shape him into our image. And so let's look at an example of where this goes wrong. If you um, have your Bibles or you can follow along with me from Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, uh, this is right after God has given the 10 words to the Israelites for the first time. And you probably know the story of the golden calf. So what happens in Exodus 32 is that the Israelites come. So Moses, is, they have all heard the Ten Commandments. They've audibly heard the Ten Commandments. But Moses stays up on the mountain receiving all of the other laws, the 600 plus laws that he's going to give to the people of Israel. So he stays up there. 
And the people then basically say to Aaron, the high priest, Aaron, man, what's going on? Moses has been gone for ages. Where is this God? Is he still here? And so they say to Aaron, make for us some gods. Verse uh, one here, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And then, so, so it seems, so here the people, they think that God is not tangible enough. They think that God is not visible enough. They can't see him. He's not near enough. So let's make him near to us. Let's make him so that we can see something visible because we can trust in that. We can trust in that. So they tell Aaron to make some gods. And it seems that the people aren't actually trying to replace God. So they're not trying to replace God. They're not trying to create another God. They are just trying to make him more real for them. And we know that because in verse 4 of Exodus 32, Aaron says, These, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the God. This calf is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 5, Aaron holds a feast or a festival to the Lord. And that you probably know when the Lord is in capital letters. That's the the word for Yahweh. So Aaron is saying, let's hold a feast to Yahweh. He's here now. He's here in the form of a calf. Yahweh is here. Let's hold a feast to him. He brought you out of Egypt. And so the people feel this gap between themselves and God. They feel this gap, this lack of understanding, and they immediately try and fix that. They try and bridge that according to their own understanding. What's logical? Well, let's make something we can see. Let's bring God down to our level. And of course, the calf is ridiculously incomparable to Yahweh. And so God is absolutely furious with them and it is only because of his sheer mercy that we see when Moses intercedes for the people that God doesn't just completely consume them and wipe them away. Even if the people may have had the best intentions in worshipping Yahweh through this calf, like even though they might have had the right intentions, God forbids it because something that we carve will never adequately represent him. It will never adequately represent this holy, infinite God. And it will most certainly lead to idolatry. And there are two main, there are probably a lot more, but there are two main dangers in creating an image of God according to our own understanding. And so I'm going to detail the two main dangers and then look at what needs to happen for us, a bit of a shift in perspective, and then finish with two of the right images that God has left us with. So firstly, two of the dangers here. The first danger in creating any image of God, whether physical or in our minds, according to our understanding, is that it will naturally obscure his glory. So it will obscure and distort his glory. To make anything in God's image according to our own understanding will obscure his glory. So images actually conceal most of God's glory. Since how could we capture 
God's glory. How could we adequately capture that? God says this in Isaiah 40, verse 18. He says, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness, and that's the same word, or what form will you compare with him? So God is saying, how, what will you liken to me from anything? What will you liken to me? I'm so set apart. I'm so holy, so different. What could you possibly come up with that would adequately represent me? What could you compare with me? How do we capture the power of the God who set hundreds of billions of stars into existence one by one, calling them by name, and who by a mere rebuke dries up the ocean, an entire ocean in an instant, able to be dried up? How do you capture the power of that? How do we capture the power of that? How do you capture the overwhelming peace of the God who, when everything in this world, from our point of view, seems to be falling apart, knows no form of anxiety from uncertainty. Nothing. Think about the anxiety that we have when we don't know what's going on. And then just imagine that God knows none of that. He knows nothing about uncertainty because he knows everything. And therefore, there is utter peace in God. How do you capture that? How do we capture that? How do you capture the holiness and purity of a God who knows no sin? Who knows no imperfections? How do you capture the holiness and purity of a God who knows nothing of giving in to lustful thoughts? So we must recognize our place as finite creatures before this infinite God and live with the beautiful mystery of an incomprehensible God. So God has made himself known to us, but there is the biblical truth. There is God's incomprehensibility. We don't reduce God. We have to be okay with beautiful divine mystery. God is so far beyond our comprehension. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways. So we must have the humility to then accept our limitations in light of how he has revealed himself to us. We don't try and bridge that gap like the Israelites did. We don't try and bridge that gap and make God more visible, make him into something that he is not. Like the Apostle Paul, who at the end of Romans 11, when he details God's whole plan of redemption, and he, he doesn't try and answer away, though I wish he would, but he doesn't try and answer away everything. He just says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his ways and how unsearchable are his judgments. How can you know? They're unsearchable and they are inscrutable. And this leads us to our second issue. So that first one, any image will obscure God's glory. It will distort his glory. We must recognize our limitation, our finiteness, and recognize that he is incomprehensible. The second danger is that to make an image according to our understanding suggests that God has not given us enough revelation already. So if we feel the need to bridge that gap of understanding when it comes to God's incomprehensibility, if we feel the need to bridge that gap by saying things like 
Well, you know, I just like to think of God as someone who would just forgive everything because he's so good and, and forgiving, you know, regardless of what I do, right? Or, uh, you know, I, I really think that God connects to me through nature. I'm not much of a Bible reader. I just kind of think God connects to me as I'm out in the wilderness and I hear from him there and you've got your Bible and I'll take my nature walks. If you have that understanding, then it denies the fact that God has given us sufficient revelation in his word. Like that is the beautiful truth of the scriptures that we have of the word of God. Now, God in his mercy gives us a plethora of things which point to him. He has carved out forms in the universe already that do point to his glory because the heavens declare the glory of God. There are beautiful things in the community of God's people that we will learn about God through being in community. There are beautiful ways in which God reveals himself to us, particular songs on the radio that God will use to actually uh, point you to him, to redirect you. God is sovereign. He's above circumstance. so He can use whatever he wants. But that is purely his mercy. He has given us sufficient in his word. We know that God's word, which points us to Christ our Savior, is sufficient to make us wise for salvation. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy, it is sufficient to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word of God is enough to then understand what we need to know for salvation, what we need to know about this God. The word of God is authority, is our authority, and it is enough. So this is why. We don't create images of God, whether physical or invisible in our mind. We recognize that we are finite and we couldn't possibly capture an adequate representation of God in all of his glory because it will simply distort the truth. And we trust that God has given us sufficient revelation to know him. Now, you might be thinking, and I was thinking this as I was writing this sermon at this point. I agree with you, Tom, but that, that sounds a bit away from me. Like I'm not really, and I'm not artistic, so I'm not really in any danger of creating some carved image. I, I know that it's going to be a terrible representation anyway, but you might be thinking for yourself that I don't really have an issue with creating like a golden calf. Like I, I know I'm not in danger of kind of creating some carved image. And so this isn't really so much of an issue for me. And I think for the most part in our current context, we don't have an issue with trying to create physical images that we think represent Christ and we use then to worship him. I haven't observe that in your lives unless you're concealing it really well but i don't think we we have so much of an issue with that but let's just ask ourselves if we see a form of this today just ask do do we see a form of creating this image of god in our society 
I wonder if you've ever heard someone say something like, well, that's not the God that I worship, usually over like a controversial issue. And they might say, well, that's not the God that I worship. My God wouldn't do that. My God would never send people to hell. My God would never restrict anyone based on their sexuality. That's not my God. That's not the God that I believe in. And is that not carving an image of God according to our preferences, according to what makes us most comfortable? Is that not creating some false image of God because we feel a gap of understanding and there's no way that we can accept the authority of Scripture. So we try and bridge that gap by saying, my God would never do that. No way. And so we may not see the physical carved images, but we can certainly carve some mean images in our minds of who we think God is. And the thing is, whenever we go beyond what Scripture sets out and hold it dogmatically, so whenever we go beyond what Scripture sets out and hold it dogmatically, we are creating an image of God that He has simply not revealed to us. We don't go beyond what God has revealed to us in Scripture and hold it as though He has and say, that's not my God, you're wrong unless we can clearly see it in his word. And so our problem in our society is even more dangerous because the images we have now are far more vague and subtle and subjective than they have been previously. And because in our culture, we are especially susceptible to tailoring God according to our preferences. So we do this with everything. We do this with products, with experiences, with our jobs. We want them to satisfy our preferences, what we most desire. And so we tailor them. We tailor them to suit our needs. And it conditions us to do that with God. We end up thinking that we can craft Him. We can tailor this spiritual experience according to our needs. We, of course, see that. I've already spoken about this many times before. We see that even in the church, how we tailor our church services to suit people's needs. We create this form of discipleship that is suited according to one's preferences. And then we wonder why it's so difficult to tell people to take up their cross and follow him. And so our main problem is that we think far too highly of ourselves and not high enough of God. We do not have a high enough view of the holy God. So we think we can fully grasp God. And whenever we feel that gap, that gap of incomprehensibility, instead of recognizing our finiteness, we, we try and bring God down to our own level. So we don't leave room for mystery or simply have enough humility to recognize that we can't fully comprehend an infinite God. And so we bridge this gap by saying, well, God must be like this. I know God. I know. And what we need is a Copernican revolution. If you remember, Nicholas Copernicus was the um, one who discovered many centuries ago that the uh, earth doesn't, the earth is not at the center of the universe, as was believed. And he then um, 
said that the sun is at the center of the universe, which now I think we know that the sun is at the center of the solar system, but perhaps the universe, um, that's not right. But his point was, everyone assumed that the earth, that we were the center of the universe. And he said, no, 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 the sun, the sun is at the center. And what we need is a similar shift. We are not at the center of the universe. We as human beings are not at the center, in one sense, of God's purposes. Of course, we are the, the pinnacle of his creation and we are the ones that will then um, rest with him in all eternity. But the shift that we need is a shift of humility to recognize that we are not the center of God's universe. God is at the center of God's universe. God is at the center of God's universe, not us. And this is largely the problem with carving images in our minds. It's our perspective. We need a shift in our perspective. If we see ourselves as central, and I think for the most part, this doesn't happen um, consciously. Very few people are so arrogant to say that they are at the center, but subconsciously our actions might demonstrate that we actually have this view where we are at the center of the universe. And so our um, happiness is what's most important to us. And we act out of what is going to benefit us. Even the good deeds that we do will make us feel good. And so that's why we do them. So if we see ourselves as central in this way, then we will assume that we can understand more about God than we can, or we will assume that we know better because we are what's most important. We are at the center. And we see this in our society again and again now where we allow cultural trends to inform how we view God and how we view scripture. We are just tossed to and fro by every new wave of culture and we allow that to inform how we view God. We're too prideful to accept that our feelings might actually be wrong. And often this demonstrates that we believe God exists for us and our purposes. And that's a question that we should ask because again, very few people would say this consciously, but subconsciously, if you examine your life, would it suggest that you think that God exists for you and your purposes? And do you need that shift to remember that you exist for God's purposes? That's the shift that we need. God does not exist for you and your purposes. Isaiah 43, God says, um, bring all of my sons and daughters who all, bring them all from the north and from the south, bring all of my sons and daughters to me whom I created for my glory. That's why we were created, for the glory of God. God is at the center. We need the kind of view. We need the kind of view that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 when he was confronted by this vision of God seated high and exalted and Isaiah then sees the seraphim um, singing holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty the Lord of hosts and he Isaiah is just struck with his uncleanness and he says oh woe to me I am unclean I'm undone and I'm amongst the people with unclean lips I've seen just a pinch of this holy God and I'm so distraught look at me 
All of my deeds are just filthy rags. All of my good deeds are filthy rags. That's the kind of shift in perspective we need to be confronted by this holy God who is at the center of his universe and we fall so far short. And, and here's the thing. If you have, if you can have this high view of God, if you have this high view of God's sovereignty, of his majesty, when you realize that God is primarily about God, then it is liberating. It is absolutely liberating. If God is about you and your purposes, it will be exhausting for you. It will be absolutely exhausting. If things are going well for you, you will become prideful and entitled. If things aren't going so well, you will become grumpy and complain. You will be tossed to and fro by your circumstances because you are at the center of your universe. And so what's happening is directly affecting you and it's about you. But if you recognize that God is about himself and a greater purpose, then you know you know that your circumstances are not a reflection of how God thinks about you because you are not central to that. And this is the beautiful reality. This is why it's liberating because if you grasp this, God being about God, if you grasp that and then you grasp the reality of what we spoke about before in Colossians 3, of you being in Christ, of you actually being in Christ, then you know that God being about God is the best possible thing for you. Ironically, it sounds selfish, but actually that is the best possible thing for you if God is about God, because you are in Christ. You are in Christ. So you know that he will never deny you because he can't deny himself. He will never deny you because in weakness, in humility, recognizing your sin, you cling to Christ. And then you reap all of the benefits. It's this posture that just says, let me just bask in the pleasure that I have from you, my God, because I cling to Christ. My life is hidden with him. And so I'm going to enjoy all of this. And you, God, keep being about you, keep being about you. And I will bask in all of the privileges that come from that because I am your son I did nothing to earn this. I just cling to Christ. I look to the cross. And I know that it is the best possible thing for you to care most about your glory. And so that is why, that is why it's liberating. You're set free from that exhausting nature of thinking that everything is about you, putting so much pressure upon yourselves. If we don't have this high view of God's holiness and majesty and the fact that God is primarily about God, then we will carve him into our image. And so this is why this is about perspective. Because otherwise, if I said to you, quit doing those artistic sculptures of Jesus, they diminish his beauty, you're using them to bow down, it's ridiculous. It would be like ripping out weeds from the top. It would not be getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is to have this Copernican-like shift to recognize that God is about God and we need to have a God-centered perspective. Therefore, we don't reduce God according to our understanding, 
We have a God-centered perspective that just sits in humility, that recognizes our weakness, and we trust that God has given us sufficient revelation to know Him. And this leads us to my final two points of these two images that God has given to us. So we don't carve our images of God because God has already carved out images for us to know Him. And the first image is ourselves. We are made in the image of God. Humanity is made in God's image. God has left us with a permanent image of himself. Though it is broken because of sin, though it is marred because of sin, all of humanity still bears the image of God and it is reflected in this world. And we still see beautiful glimmers of this in our society. As much as it is broken, we still see beautiful images of the fact that we are made in the image of God. When we see random people, totally random people, and an event happens, something traumatic, and all of these strangers just pull together and help. And we still see that. And that's not unique to Christianity. That's just humanity. When we look, there will always be pockets of people that will pull together when other people are in need. I know one of my friends, a really dear friend to me, is not a Christian. And his eldest son, who's five, has been battling leukemia for the last one and a half years. And a bunch of his friends raised $50,000 for them. And I'm quite sure none of them were Christian. And they raised $50,000 for his treatment to go to Ronald McDonald House every three months for the last year and a half. And I think that is, we still see beautiful, though it is broken, but we still see glimmers of the fact that we are made in God's image. We, we have this compassion that is brought out. Now, that's not the image that we hold on to, though, because the one image... The final image of God is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And that word for image there is actually the Greek word icon, where we get icon from. So there was one man who could, in a sense, break the second commandment, and that was Jesus. You shall not make any images of God. God was the only one who could break it because he sent his son as the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, I'll finish with this. Long ago, at many times, this is from Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God has spoken through the prophets in many ways, but now, ultimately, how has God revealed himself? He has revealed himself to all of humanity in his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God look to Jesus. Look at him and you will see the radiance of God's glory. That's why he is light. That's why the Apostle John refers to him as light. He comes and light shines into darkness. The light is Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And 
the exact imprint of his nature, the exact representation, the exact form of the nature of God. That is Jesus. See, a lot of people have misguided views of God because of caricatures, because of this very issue with the second commandment, because of creating false images that they think represents God. And so we're left with these caricatures that are either stoic, like a stoic God that's just emotionless, or only full of wrath, with flames coming out of his nose. Or today, probably more popular is a kind of pathetic God that's just not powerful and just forgives everything. But we come to truly know and worship God through the visible image of God, which is Jesus Christ. That's how we know God. So you want to stay obedient to the second commandment. Seek to know Christ intimately in every way imaginably. So in Jesus, in Jesus, we see the fullness of God as far as our finite minds can comprehend. In Jesus, we see the overwhelming compassion of God when Jesus comes to the most despicable sinners of society and invites them in and says, come in, come dine with me, come into my presence. He graciously brings them in. In Jesus, we see the righteous anger of God when Jesus flips over tables in the temple or when he scolds the Pharisees of the day who should have known better. In Jesus, we see the grief over loved ones. Can you imagine that? In, so in Jesus, we see God weep over the death of loved ones, over Lazarus. And Jesus weeps and weeps and the crowds look on and say, oh, how he loved this man. We don't need to create any more images of God since we have the perfect image in Jesus handed down to us and preserved in the scriptures. Jesus is the image of God. That's why we are always about Christ. Everything that we do centers upon Jesus, upon his work on the cross, upon the fact that our whole life is hidden with him. He is the exact representation of God.